we are going to kick off a new series today. And the series is called, well, it's really a question, which is maybe a little strange. Who is Faith Church? And we're going to try to answer that question over the course of four weeks. And uh, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to look at that in just a moment here. But this series, over the course of four weeks, we're going to go back to the basics. Uh, who is Faith Church? What, what is, what is, uh, how would you describe Faith Church according, of course, to the Scriptures? Well, I have four descriptions here. Uh, we are a worshiping people. We are a loving people. We are a disciple-making people. And then finally, we are a generous people. And it aligns really well with our three values. So if you walked into the sanctuary from kind of this middle entrance area here, you saw above on the brick, you saw our three values. We want to be a people who live in communion with God. We want to be a people who live in community with one another. And finally, we want to be on mission together. And today, our focus is going to be on what it means for Faith Church to be a worshiping people. Now, if you've lived the Christian life for a long time, this next statement is not going to be a surprise to you. The Christian life is a life of worship. The Christian life at the very bottom is a life of worship. It's the thing underneath everything that we do. You know, it's not easy to deal with the harsh realities of a fallen world. Parenting is hard. Being a faithful worker in an office is hard. Depression and anxiety are hard. Sharing Christ with a neighbor friend is hard. But friends, what's underneath all of these things that God has called us to do and be faithful in? Well, there's this thing called worship. It's what drives us. It, it, it should burn within us so that we are propelled forward to live for the Lord. What's underneath everything we do here on Sunday mornings? Our singing, our listening, our praying, our giving, our caring for one another. It's worship. There is something that ought to burn within us, a, a love, an affection, a submission, a reverence to Christ that ought to fuel our Christian lives. This is what I want you to notice in Isaiah's life as we look at this chapter. Now, as I read this passage, consider what beholding God does to this man, Isaiah. Okay, let's read now Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Hear God's word. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces, and two, they covered their feet, and with two, they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. And one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongues. He touched my mouth with it and said, now this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed, and your sin is atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, who should I send? Who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. 
This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Oh, Father, if it were possible to do even 5% justice to this passage, I would be thrilled. And so I ask that you would fill up whatever might be lacking in myself and in my preaching so that we together could behold you in all of your glory and splendor. Father, lift up the person of Jesus as we look at these verses. Teach us what it looks like to worship you fully and freely. In Christ's name, amen. I want you to take note of the dramatic transitions in this passage. One minute Isaiah is depressed and his king is dead. Notice in verse 1, not all is well. By the end of the chapter, he's up for doing whatever God wants. One minute Isaiah says, woe is me. Notice just about two seconds later, he says, here I am, send me. So what happened? And you see it, those first few verses, he beholds his God. I want to give you the main point in a sentence here. You'll see it on the screen. Beholding our God in his fullness is the fuel for the Christian life. Beholding our God in his fullness is the fuel for the Christian life. So I'm going to give you three points. We're going to spend the bulk of our time on the first point and less time on the second and third points. And I just have to say, uh, 21, 22 years ago, I became a Christian and I was taught this passage by two men, two pastors that you probably know, John Piper and R.C. Sproul. And it is so hard for me to look at this passage without remembering the wonderful, amazing things that I learned from those two men. So I have to give credit where it's due. Uh, I'd commend their teaching ministries, of course, to you. So let's look at the first four verses here. This is one of the most powerful and moving descriptions of God that we have in the Scriptures. It's absolutely stunning. The story begins, of course, with Isaiah walking into Jerusalem's temple. And his king, notice Uzziah, who had ruled for 52 years, was now dead. It was difficult to imagine life without this king, naturally, right? Those 52 years were generally prosperous, except for the very end. And so Isaiah's wondering, now what? Who's going to rule? Will Israel's enemies take advantage? What's going to happen now? Naturally, right? And for the rest of our time on this point, I want to give you five descriptions of God that we can derive from this picture. We're going to stare long and hard at this vision of God and kind of turn the diamond a little bit and see who God is from different angles. Here's the first description of God. God is eternally alive. God is eternally alive. Isaiah's king is dead. There is another king who can never die. Another throne that can never be emptied. This is what Isaiah encountered when he walked into the temple. His king is dead, but the king is alive. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Friends, God was alive when this universe came into existence. He was living when Archimedes shouted, Eureka. He was living when Columbus landed on North America. And he was living in 1966 when Thomas Altizer proclaimed him dead. And Time Magazine put that on the cover. He will be living 10 billion eons from now when all those ridiculous pot shots against him will be long forgotten. God is eternally alive. Think about the turnover in world leadership. 100%, right? 
We've got 8.1 billion people alive today, and in about 100 years or so, we'll have brand new people on this planet. The rest of us will vanish from this earth like Uzziah, but not God. He has no beginning. He has no end. Friends, we can preach this message to ourselves, right? My king is dead, but the king is alive. My king is dead. The king is alive. The depression has set in, but the king is alive. The car needs repairs yet again, but the king is alive. Parenting is so difficult, but the king is alive. Work is awfully stressful right now, but the king is alive. The Buckeyes have lost two years in a row, but now, now say, it, say it with me. The king is alive. I've been preaching this gospel to myself for, what, 11 or 12 years on the other side of that, so just for a couple of years, okay? Friends, each day we open up the Bible, each day we walk into this room on Sunday mornings, we open up ourselves to the God who is here. He is here. He is alive. That's the first thing we see in this passage. Number two, God is comfortably enthroned. God is comfortably enthroned. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne. And the temple in Jerusalem represented God's rule coming down to the nation of Israel. But on this day, for Isaiah, the earthly symbol merged into this heavenly reality. As the earthly king lay dead, the true sovereign king was reigning, holding court, and Isaiah saw it. Listen, this isn't symbolic language. This is a real experience that Isaiah had. God is there. The curtain was pulled back just for a minute. Much like when Jesus ascended the Mount of Transfiguration with three of his closest friends, three disciples, they saw Jesus for just a few moments in the fullness of his glory. What Isaiah saw, as you notice these first opening verses, is an enthroned Lord. Listen, friends, God is not nervous about the polls. He doesn't get voted in. No one is monitoring his Twitter account. He doesn't have a PR agent. He doesn't have to wonder if he'll win the debate. There is no debate. He is enthroned. And notice two things about his enthroned reign. First, he's sitting. Do you notice that? He's not scurrying about. He's not conferring with counselors. He is sitting. And all is calm. All is well from the vantage point of our king. God has never said, oops. The second thing I want you to notice is this throne, from Isaiah's perspective, is high and lifted up. It's lofty. It's not just that God is enthroned. His reign is an exalted reign. He has no challengers. He has no rivals, no competitors. God has absolute certain, unchallenged rule over this entire universe, and that includes your life and mine. We don't give God authority over our lives. He has it. The question is, will we accept it? Will we welcome it? Will we yield to it? God is comfortably enthroned. Number three, God is graciously resplendent. Graciously Resplendent. Look at verse 1 again. At the end of verse 1, it says, The hem of his robe filled the temple. Do you know that word resplendent, what it means? Full of splendor, 
full of glory, full of majesty. God is lavish in his splendor. In God's fullness, he overflows with majesty and beauty. Think about a bride on their wedding day. Now, their, their dresses have this kind of long train and, and with, with kind of a hem, and it's kind of gathered all around them, often covering the steps of the platform, right? And it's meant to kind of represent their beauty and, and the glory of, of who they are. What would it mean if the hem of, of her dress, the train, filled up the aisles and the seats of the entire sanctuary? And we, we walk into the wedding ceremony, we have to kind of navigate and negotiate around that. I mean, it would be excessive, right? That would be excessive beauty. That would be too much pomp and circumstance for a human. But for God, there is no excess in expressing his beauty. In this scene, his fullness of being spills over in unbridled majesty. Just the hem, the very edges of his robe, fill up the temple. And this suggests that even the highest heaven cannot contain our God. And yet, notice, he graciously touches the earth. God isn't so amazing that he stands aloof to us. He's not so transcendent that he avoids us. He touches us with his transcendence. His hem is in the temple. His excessive beauty is meant to be enjoyed by us. And number four, God is dramatically Worship, put your eyes on verse 2. I want you to picture this scene. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they flew. And one called to another. Apparently the throne room is quite a busy place. What do we know about this seraphim creature? Well, there's not a lot in the scriptures. They don't appear very much in the Bible, at least under this name. In other biblical texts, we get the sense that angelic beings are massive, uh, 10 feet or 10, 20 feet tall. And so it, it's natural that people would be really afraid of these angels. Now think about the shepherds in the field, right? They were afraid. We best not picture chubby-winged babies fluttering around the Lord's ears. I mean, when, when one of them speaks, notice verse 4, when one of them speaks, the metal and the wood of the temple violently shakes, right? They're more like jet fighters breaking the sound barriers than cute little babies with harps. We don't know how many there are. When I first kind of initially studied this passage as a young Christian in my early 20s, I, I just pictured two or three kind of flying around and singing the song. But Revelation, interestingly, describes a scene with myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands angels. Can you imagine that? And notice these particular angels have one job, one job, they worship. Seraphim means something like burning ones. These angels are living flames of pure, nuclear-powered praise. This isn't their part-time job. Every day, every hour, you will find these terrifying beings crying out one to another. There's like a choir over here, and there's a choir over there, and they're crying out, holy, holy holy. Friends, why do we sometimes here at church read Scripture antiphonally or responsibly with maybe a group of us saying one and another group doing the other? Usually it's the leader and the congregation. Was well, it Catholic or is it Methodist or is it just kind of high church liturgy? No, the pattern of responsive Bible reading is found in the very throne room of God. 
That is who we are imitating. And notice God has given these angels three pairs of wings. They cover their faces. They cover their feet. They're flying. Why do they cover their faces and feet? Well, because they can't even look at God. He is so holy, and they don't want to leave their feet exposed to this God. It, it kind of, you know, we double-click on that, and we go back to, what is it, Exodus chapter 3, and we think of Moses as he walks into the presence of God with a burning bush. What's the first instruction that God gives? Take off your sandals because you are on holy ground. This is holy space, but most importantly, this is a holy God. If one of these seraphims were to appear before us today, maybe in this middle aisle, we would be completely undone. We would be so afraid. We would be on our faces. We think, is, is this Jesus you know, coming back? I mean, that, that's how awful and great and terrifying and glorious these creatures are. And yet these creatures hide in the presence of God. They're not worthy. How much more would we shudder in his presence. God is dramatically worshipped in the number five. God is utterly holy, utterly holy. And here we have come kind of to the white hot center of Isaiah's vision, the content of the angels cry. God is holy, holy, holy. In Hebrew poetry, this kind of repetition is a form of emphasis. When we want to emphasize something in our writing, what do we do? Well, we underline the word or maybe we italicize it or we put an exclamation point at the end. We're trying to get our reader's attention in some way. Well, the ancient Jews would often use repetition. So think with me back to Jesus's words. He would say things like, truly, truly, I say to you. And we're thinking, oh, he's about to say something really important. It's kind of like that. And only one time in sacred scripture is, is an attribute of God elevated to this third degree. The Bible never says God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or just, just, just. But the Bible does say that God is holy, holy, holy. And this idea of holiness is beyond just the category of moral purity. Yes, God is infinitely morally pure. But holy is derived from the idea of cutting or separating. Maybe you've heard this before. A holy thing is cut off and separated from the common thing. So earthly things or even people are considered holy as they are distinct from the world and faithful to God. So in the Bible, we find holy ground and holy assemblies, holy Sabbaths and holy cities and holy people. So what about God? What is God separated from in order to make him holy? You know the answer to this question? Everything, <laughs> literally everything. There, there is a massive, massive chasm between God and everything. <laughs> God is one of a kind, sui generis, in a class by himself. He is the holy other, as Sproul says, W-H-O-L-L-Y. He is holy other, a cut above. And we need to take two more steps in order to understand this further. Step one. God is holy means that every attribute of God is given color by his holiness. Every attribute of God is given color by his holiness. What do, what do I mean by that? Well, it's not just that God is loving and faithful and good and just. His love, his faithfulness, his goodness and justice are incomparable. They are each a cut above everybody else's love and faithfulness and goodness and justice. Does that make sense? That's step one. Here's step two. It's found in the text. Look at verse three. Where's the end? 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. Here it is. His glory fills the earth. So this holy God isn't hiding his holiness. He's filling up the earth with his glory. He's not only kind of way up there. He's also way down here. Friends, before time began, in eternity past, God was complete in himself. He was never lonely within the blazing fellowship of the Godhead. He has always been full. He's always been happy in himself. So why did God create this world then? Not to remedy some lack or need in himself, but to spread his goodness, to share, to overflow. His glory is slowly filling the earth. His holiness is becoming visible. His holiness is going public. Now, where, where do we see this? Well, we see this in creation. Psalm 19 says, the heavens, what? Declare the glory of God. We see this foremost and powerfully in Jesus, his son, as he came to earth and lived 33 years, lived a life of righteousness and died an unjust death, was raised to new life. We see it as we look, put our eyes upon Jesus. But we also see it in Christ's body, the church, as one by one people repent of their sins and come to faith and are drawn to Christ and are drawn into this beautiful family. Whether it's this one or perhaps another one, I don't know, maybe you're visiting us this morning, but you see the glory of God, not only in creation, not only in Christ, as we consider his life, death, and resurrection, but we also see it in the local church. Friends, this vision reminds us that God is making earth an extension of his throne room in heaven. The curtain is pulled back. Isaiah sees it, right? God's will for our lives is that his reign, his holiness, breaks into our lives. Heaven is expanding. It's spreading in our direction by way of a king. His name is Jesus. And that means the meaning of our existence is all connected to Jesus and heaven coming towards us. I want you to listen to Elizabeth Barrett Browning's words. This is from her poem, Aurora Lee. Earth is crammed with heaven and every common brush of fire with God. And only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries and daub their natural faces unaware. Heaven is taken over. My question for you and me is, will we wake up? Will we yield to it? Goodness, you know, I, I know our everyday lives feel so far from what we see in these opening verses. We, we kind of plod through our daily routines, seldom feeling a sense of God's presence. Why is that? Well, I think it's because we're absorbed in our own petty ambitions. We are more interested in building our own kingdoms and putting ourselves on the throne. So how can these angels claim that God's glory is filling the earth, right? Well, because little by little bit, his glory is filling up Christians and filling up churches. Because from the heights of the heavens, these angels can see the end of the world. And so they're, they're speaking of kind of this glory coming down to earth through Christians in churches slowly and slowly, but they're also seeing the end game. From down here on earth, the view of God's glory is limited, isn't it? Because we're too distracted by earthly thrills and frills. You know, Soren Kierkegaard once said that we are like people who ride our carriage at night into the country to see the glory of God. 
you know, uh, above us on either side of the carriage, there was these kind of burning gas lanterns, right? And they're kind of swaying in the wind and we're going down the road. And as long as our head is surrounded by this kind of artificial light, the sky overhead all, with, with all of the, the beauty that's there, it, we can't see it. So hey, there's kind of an, uh, an emptiness there. But if by some gracious wind of the Spirit, God blows out those earthly lights, well, then in our darkness, God's heavens are filled with his glory. Friends, someday God will blow out every competing glory and make his holiness known to every creature, but there's no need to wait. I want to hold out this vision before our eyes this morning and invite you to see it and taste it and glory in it. Heaven has come and is coming down. Now, here's the deal, folks. God cannot be boring. God cannot be tedious. If we find him boring, if we find him tedious for some reason, the problem doesn't lie with him. The problem lies with us. He is the most interesting being in this universe. This vision kind of <laughs> just confirms it and shows us why he is infinitely interesting. And I'm convinced that as we open up our Bibles every day, when we look at our Bible, when we listen to a message on Sunday mornings, Every time God's word is opened up, every story, every pericope in the Bible displays some aspect of God's glory, elevates some attribute of God. Of course, the question is, do we see it? Do we have eyes to see that? So let me encourage you to pray for spiritual enlightenment, for the eyes to see it. Humbly look for it in your daily Bible reading. Come to church expecting not just to learn, but to see. You know, the main through line of the Bible isn't behave, it's behold. God wants us to see anew and afresh, and he wants us to see himself, in particularly his son Jesus. So that's all the first point, behold your God. Number two, as we put our eyes on verses five through seven, behold your sin, behold your sin. It wasn't only the temple that was shaking, Isaiah was shaking as well as he was trying to comprehend and absorb this incredible vision of God. Notice verses 5 through 7, and then I said, we hear Isaiah's voice for the first time, woe is me for I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips and because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of armies. You know, for the first time we hear Isaiah, what does he say? He says, woe. That's not like W-H-O-A, you know, whoa, the Reds are doing really well right now. That's, this is a, the opposite direction, right? This isn't bad news. Prophets would have oracles. That's kind of the language of the prophet, and they would be good, positive oracles. Do you know what they are? They're called blessings, right? And then there would be bad, negative oracles. What would they be? Curses. That's what we see here. But what's extraordinary here is that Isaiah is calling down a curse of judgment upon himself. Why is he doing that? Well, it says, he says, for I am ruined, or more literally, undone. I like that word, undone. It's more vivid than ruined. It means coming apart at the seams, to be unraveled. Some modern psychologists speak of personal disintegration. Someone who has it all together is an integrated person, we might say. Isaiah has come undone. Why has he come undone? Notice he gives three very clear reasons. He says, first of all, he has unclean lips. 
He's also living with amongst the people who have unclean lips. So he sees his own personal sin, but he also sees kind of I'm amongst people. It's not like out there there's much more hope. We together are sinful. But then he says, I have seen the king. You know, if ever there was a person who was put together, it would have been Isaiah. He was a good Jewish citizen. He was a statesman. This is all before he encounters God here. He interacted with kings and rulers. So this guy was respected. He was, he was a respected paragon of virtue. And as long as Isaiah would compare himself to these kind of mere mortals around him, he was able to kind of sustain this lofty opinion of himself. But now, I mean, up against the ultimate standard and the ultimate beauty and the ultimate glory, he was undone. He came apart, perhaps for the first time. For the first time, he really worships God. God has knocked the silly swagger out of him. And his worship begins, notice, with a keen and yet painful recognition of his own sin. He sees himself because he has seen God clearly. Brothers and sisters, how easy is it for you and me to entertain proud thoughts? Just subtly proud thoughts, you know? Like, I'm not that bad. I mean, I'm not as bad as her. I mean, did you see that Bible reading and prayer time I did yesterday? Wow. Did you hear that prayer I prayed for my missionary friend like during my Bible study? I opened my eyes once and I saw a tear. Wow. Heck, God's just lucky to have me for one whole hour every week, let alone the whole week. But then we behold our God. Maybe it's Sunday morning and you're singing a song and you just get a little taste of the glory of God that is in the face of Jesus. Maybe it's a sermon that's being preached. Or maybe you're home and it's been a hard week and you've come to the end of yourself because of your sin. And you recognize that my only hope lies in a God who is utterly holy. Well, what happens next? Notice in verses 6 and 7, God mercifully cleanses the prophet. Here's the good news of the gospel. Isaiah is groveling on the floor likely. Every part of his being is trembling. He was probably looking for a place to hide, much like Adam and Eve in the garden right after they sinned, trying to avoid the holy gaze of God. There was nowhere to hide for these two. And then if you add Isaiah, I guess three. Isaiah had no fig leaves to conceal his shame. But our God is a merciful God, is he not? He tells a seraph to kind of peel off his his course, you know, and and fly down and grab some coal and and head over to Isaiah. He's got this burning coal, which he sears Isaiah's lips. And then notice what the angel declares to Isaiah in verse 6. Your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. You know, as we think about the whole story of the Bible, we must see this burning coal as symbolizing the finished work of Jesus on the cross. He went to the place of sacrifice. He was seared, not for his own sin, but for ours. He comes to us today and he tells every single one of us who have repented and believed and trusted him, your sin and iniquity are taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Come into my presence Friends, feeling badly about yourself is not something you want to avoid. 
It's something you want to embrace. It's actually a requirement for becoming a Christian. It's also a requirement for growing up as a Christian. Now, we never want to stay put in that feeling of being undone. We want to move from that place, and God is gracious. He obviously moves us from that place. But too many of us, especially in modern-day America, tend to want to put any and every bad feeling or thought about ourselves aside. But I want you to put your eyes on Isaiah. When he says, woe is me, is that just like mentally unhealthy? You know, unhealthy? If he were to walk into this church and kind of convey this sort of attitude for us, would we say, you need to go check yourself in into like a residential mental health facility? Or could it be, could it be the starting place for true Christian mental health? It is. And part of what the secular world is trying to get you and me to think is that's a bad place to start. It's a bad place to end. It's not a bad place to start. I want to tell you a story about a man named Bob Coughlin. How many of you know Bob Coughlin? Name sounds familiar. I know there's like at least three of you. He, uh, he is a songwriter. He was part of the group Glad back in the day. So that's a different generation. Than me. Okay, see some heads nodding. My head is not nodding. My mom's head would be nodding. It's okay. It's okay. Uh, he is now a pastor in Louisville. He's a music pastor. He's written lots of modern songs and hymns. So he's part of the Sovereign Grace music scene. We sing some of his songs here at church. Well, in 1994, 1995, he's written about this. So this is an article in Desiring God, if you want to go look into it. He talks about this two-year season of his life where he is just so discouraged. Hardest two years of his life. And on the outside, everything looked great. I mean, he was a pastor. He had a fruitful ministry. He was writing songs that people were singing. It was just wonderful. But inside, as you looked at his life and as you got to know his family life and so forth, there was depression, there was detachment, there was anxiety, and there were panic attacks. Two years. And he did everything he could to try to figure out, okay, what's going on? How do I get out of this? I'm going to try this. I'm going to try that. He did everything he could. And then two years in, he talked to his friend, Gary, who was a fellow elder in his church. And he said, Gary, I feel hopeless. And I want you to listen to Gary's response. This is a direct quote. I don't think you're hopeless enough. Do you hear that? I don't think you're hopeless enough. If you were completely hopeless, you'd stop trusting in what you can do and trust in what Jesus has already done for you in Christ. Brothers and sisters, sometimes our problem is we don't feel hopeless enough. Bob Coughlin's pain was due to his spurned pursuit of personal glory. Listen to his own words. Very subtle, but it was there. Over time, this is Bob talking, over time I came to see God was guiding the whole process in order to turn my heart to him. He wanted to wean me from my self-centered idolatry so I could find the greater joy of pursuing his glory instead of mine. Wow. Wow. So, so I just wonder, friends, for you and for me, might God be doing something similar? Are you not hopeless enough? Are you hoping, in other words, in the wrong things? And that's why you're feeling what you're feeling. You know, there are two sides to pride in our lives. The first side is, of course, obvious. It's arrogance. The other side, which is not obvious, it's so utterly subtle, it's insecurity. 
But both are utterly self-centered and anti-gospel and full of pride. If arrogant pride says, look at me, insecure pride says, somebody look at me, please. But the underlying current is the same. Isaiah 6 reminds us we need to be in the same place as the prophet. Woe is me apart from God's intervention. Woe is me. Not, sure, I made some mistakes, or I'm not that bad. Before the cross of Christ, we can put aside our defensiveness. We can put all of that aside and embrace our neediness. Blessed are those who know their need. It's so much like what Pastor Steve said to us last Sunday. Do you remember? He said, it's okay to be fragile. By the way, that's not just an occasional thing that you can kind of confess to yourself. Oh, in this particular season of life, I'm fragile. Maybe you're extra fragile. Sure. But you and I, because we're creatures and because we're sinners, we will always be fragile. Always. I wonder if you're here uh, and you're not a Christian. I wonder what you've been thinking about. You know, been listening to the songs and prayers and this message. Are you... You know, as a kind of self-conscious non-Christian, by the way, if you are that, hey, praise the Lord. I'm so glad that you actually recognize that you're not a Christian. Uh, for many years, I thought I was a Christian, but I wasn't. So that self-recognition is really good. But, but I wonder, if, if you're not a Christian here, are you able to behold a little of God's fullness and His holiness and glory, even this morning? I wonder whether you're seeing some things, new things perhaps, through spiritual eyes that you haven't seen before. What is that vision doing to you right now? Are you becoming more aware, perhaps, of your sinfulness and of your neediness and of your fragility before a holy but also gracious God? Maybe that's been happening, not, not here this, on Sunday morning. Maybe it's been happening for the last few weeks. Maybe the circumstances of your life have kind of pressed on you and, and have forced you to consider, maybe for the first time, but maybe for the tenth time, consider God, and that's why you're here. You might be thinking, hey, maybe I need an angel like Isaiah. Friend, you don't need an angel. You can have Christ. You can have the one who will come and die for your sins. And all you have to do is trust in him alone and believe in him and repent of those sins. You can have him. All right, number three, behold your life. I want you to look at verse eight with me. In many ways, I wanted to preach the rest of this chapter, and I planned to, but it would have been about a 72-minute sermon. And even though I feel like, you know, it's been 12 weeks, so I have a lot to say, I thought that would not serve you well. So, but we're going to look at at least verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking. So here we hear for the first time God's voice. And what does God say? He says, who should I send? Who will go for us? And then little Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And we've talked about beholding our God is, is the fuel for the Christian life. So beholding God leads to not only kind of a self-abasement and salvation, but it also leads to service. Notice these last few verses. You know, we're not going to read all of them, but he takes on this incredible mission to go to Israel and speak a word of judgment to them of all things. I mean, it's a hard mission. We're going to talk about that in a second. But he says, okay. And so Isaiah is not only undone by his own sin and weakness, he's not only forgiven and covered, but now he's set free for self-forgetful service. This is the pattern of the Christian life. A guilty conscience, liberated by grace, unleashes us to serve God. 
You see, for Isaiah, he's not just beholding God as the holy God and ruler, as if somehow that's detached from his own situation. Now he's beholding God as his redeemer and Lord. That's my God, because he has atoned for my sins. He's made me right with him, and now I am his. His entire life now is in God's hands He's beheld God, he's beheld his sin, and now he offers up his life. It reminds me of what we read earlier, what Joyce uh, so wonderfully read, and she prayed over these verses too. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. In view of God's mercies, offer your life as a living sacrifice. This is your worship. So what can we learn about a life of worship from Isaiah's commissioning? He's being commissioned as a prophet. Let me just point out two things. I want to say a whole lot more, but again, time. Uh, is restrictive. First, I want you to notice an open-handed willingness to do whatever God asks, right? Isaiah's mission, as I mentioned before, is really hard. If you put your eyes on verses 9 and following, you'll see just how hard it is. God is asking him to tell Israel that he's going to come and judge them. Friends, sometimes God calls us to do hard things, Sometimes faithfulness means choosing the road less traveled. And I wonder whether you're in that place right now. We Americans so crave comfort and convenience. We look at a hard thing and we often avoid it. If it hurts, it's not for me. But a life of worship, a life that has beheld the glory of God and the, the misery of our own sin and the joy of our salvation, that life will necessarily result in doing whatever he asks. Brothers and sisters, is this your attitude? You know, the gospel writer John, centuries after this scene, this is John chapter 12, you can look at it later, he claims that the exalted Lord that Isaiah sees was Jesus himself. Isn't that cool? Isaiah didn't know it at the time, but we know it. Through the lens of John, Isaiah saw Jesus high and lifted up. These seraphim, they're, they're flying around. Jesus, they're crying out, holy, 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 the whole earth is filled with your glory. They're crying that out to Jesus. This week, you are going to worship something. You will give your attention, your affection, your efforts towards certain things we don't have to try to worship. We are worshipers by na nature. The question is, who or what will you and I worship? And so, friends, what will fuel your Christian life this week? What will your heart feed upon to give you the energy to live out your life as a Christian? Will it be kind of just a good old American can-do spirit? Will it be a slavish desire to obey? Maybe you want to be seen and recognized to prove you're spiritual or to maybe outdo one of your friends? Or will an ever-growing affection and reverence for Christ be what drives you to do the hard thing, to proclaim Christ, to parent with patience, to love your spouse sacrificially, to speak a kind word to a hurting friend? Will this magnificent vision of a holy God be what grips you and unleashes you into this week. I pray that it will. I pray that it will for me too. After all, isn't Christ infinitely worthy of all of our lives? 
I mean, he's the lamb of God. He's the lion of Judah. He's the one who was slain to purchase for God a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Isn't he worthy of more worship and more worshipers? The one who has labored for our spiritual good, isn't he worthy of our labors? Worthy of our temporary discomfort as we're trying to faithfully do family life or love our neighbors or proclaim Jesus? Isn't he worthy of all the rejections and misunderstandings and insults we may have to endure for just a short time? He is worthy. He is more than worthy, friends. Amen? Amen. Let's take a moment now to ponder the passage and prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper.